go ahead and be seated. This morning we're continuing on in our sermon series, The Journey, where we are walking through the four Gospels uh, in a chronological order as best as we can determine uh, of the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we come to a passage of Scripture this morning uh, that is embedded at the heart of this passage, a verse of Scripture that individuals outside of the church uh, that maybe have never even walked uh, through the doors of a church before uh, would be familiar with, and that's John 3.16. And so if you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through John chapter 3, verse 21, in a message entitled, Establishing the Essentials. Up until this point, what we've seen Jesus do is, is Jesus has, has performed signs and he has performed wonders. There's um, activity that is surrounding Jesus. He's called his first disciples to himself, uh, and he has come into Jerusalem, and he is, as we saw last week, flipped over some tables, and uh, he has caused quite a stir at the Passover, and the religious leaders have confronted him to uh, try to ascertain who it is that, that, that you are. You're, you're, you're performing messianic um, uh, prerogatives, but we need to see messianic power to to corroborate what it is that, that you are doing and who it is that you say that you are. And up until this point, we've seen Jesus do certain things that allude to and show the fulfillment of prophecy and that he is the Messiah. But up until this point, we really haven't heard any teachings from Jesus per se. And in our passage of Scripture, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to establish the essentials of his ministry. All of his other teachings and all of his other actions are birthed out of the reality of what we find in John chapter 2, verse 23, all the way through John chapter 3, verse 21. And here, there's a reality that we all must come face to face with. In a world of virtual reality and augmented reality, we need to make sure we don't lose sight of the ultimate reality. That there is a God who has spoke everything into existence. And as those individuals that comprise creation, we are to submit ourselves to the authority of our creator. Maybe you've seen some of these various videos of individuals with the, with the VR goggles on and they're in the virtual reality world. I watched one where one man was um, playing a, a boxing game and he got pretty in, into it. I mean, you see this guy in this living room. I mean, he is just going out. He's in this other world. And an unsuspecting individual who walked in, a family member, into the, the, the room caught a overhand right. And poor Uncle Lonnie is getting the standing eight count in the kitchen. And all he was trying to do was come in and fill his wife's cup of sweet tea. 
And I think oftentimes God looks at us sometimes in that way. We're, we're fighting the, these battles and we're actually causing more harm than, than, than good because we aren't living in the reality that God's word lays out for us. We have lost sight of what it is that God says to us is the reality of our lives and our situations. Or there's augmented reality where you... Don't go into the virtual world, but you bring pieces of the virtual world into your world. And there are many false religions that, that do that. They will bring in these, these, these false uh, understandings of who God is, or they'll create these false gods, and they will try to project them into our world. And it is, all, it is important for us to be reminded of the ultimate reality. And Jesus does just that to a man named Nicodemus who comes and Jesus will establish the essentials of what true reality is. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. These essentials that Jesus will show us in this passage of Scripture today help us to see the world around us in the proper perspective in the correct light. They're not just to show us reality and, and truth. They are to show us what it is that we see all around us. Look with me if you're taking notes. The first thing that I want to point out to you is what we find in verses 23 through 25, and that's the mess. This world is a mess. You may be sitting in here this morning, and you may say that your life is a mess. And what we see in verses 23 through 25 is we see Jesus acknowledging this reality of the mess that we find ourselves in. Verse 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they, they saw all of the works and the wonders and the signs that Jesus was doing, and they understood in a limited capacity that he is the Savior, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And they want to bring him into the role of king. But he knows what is in man, and so he does not entrust himself to man. In other words, he understands what has transpired with good intentions before of elevating somebody to the role of king over God's people, and he saw the destructive nature of that because God was always supposed to be king over God's people. He understands the venom of sin that is coursing through the veins of mankind. Oftentimes, I think we fail to understand the true depravity of man. We don't understand the, the, the depths of sin and evil that men are capable of. Oftentimes, I think we want to assume that humanity is really not all that bad. 
But what Jesus shows us is that he will not entrust himself to them in that regard because he knows what is actually destroying them cannot be fixed by an earthly king. That's a good word for us today. Because oftentimes what we are looking for is not the advancement of the gospel, but to elevate an individual to the role of king over our lives and allow them to try to fix all the brokenness in this world when in reality they're just as much in need of Jesus as we are. He said, I will not entrust myself to man because I know what's in man. And I know that they don't need an earthly king. They need a savior. Sin is running rampant through man's heart. In fact, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen, church, our hearts are completely corrupted. Our hearts are complete. They're, they're not just sort of corroded. They're, they're, they're not just... A small percentage corrupt. They are completely and utterly corrupted. That's why the answer is not a political affiliation. That's why the answer is not a political leader. That's why the answer is not a philosophy. That's why the answer is not uh, financial uh, freedom. That is why the answer is not uh, education reform or prison reform. None of those things in and of themselves address the reality of the mess that we are actually in. Because it flows out from the heart. All of those other things are symptoms. The root of the mess is the depraved heart of man apart from God. In fact, we see Romans 3.23, God says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one does good. No, not one. The mess is because of the rebellion of man against God and against his word. Secondly, we see in this passage of Scripture, we see the measurement. So how do you get out of this mess? What is the the standard? And there are so many individuals that will try to address the reality of the mess that we live in, the brokenness, the depravity of man's heart, and they will set different standards, but none of those standards are the standards of God. None of those standards are the true measurement in which God sets for the rebellious people to be redeemed and to be saved. And so we see that during this time at the Passover, there comes a man in chapter 3, verse 1, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. There was 70 individuals uh, religious leaders, the, the who's who of the Jews that comprise the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus is one of them. He's one of the, the stalwarts. He's one of the 70 leaders of God's people. And this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there's many reasons that people speculate to why he came to Jesus by night. Was it under the cover of darkness so that the other individuals wouldn't see him coming uh, to Jesus? Or was it because he wanted to have alone time with Jesus and he believed that this would be a time that he would be able to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with Jesus? 
The reality is we don't know exactly what the motive was for Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, but John will always play with the picture of night and day. We see it in 1 John. We see it throughout the, uh, the gospel of John. And so we see that regardless of the motive of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, we do see that that is an important aspect of his spiritual condition. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. Remember, Jesus is performing signs and miracles, and individuals understand that he's got to be from God. But now Nicodemus is coming. What is the message that you bring? We know that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. And Jesus answered him. In other words, Jesus said, let's just cut right to the chase. What you have come is you have come to, 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 to hear what it is that you believe a messenger from God has to say. He refers to him as rabbi. He refers to him as teacher. And what he is going to do is he is going to show that he far exceeds just a good teacher for he is the very son of God. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the measurement right there, that you must be born again. It's not that you you, you stop whatever that addiction is. It's not that you, you, you stop what, whatever this, this immorality is in your life. It's not that you attend church at a certain rate or memorize a certain amount of passages. It's not that you would serve at a shelter uh, and give of your time to a certain degree. It is that you have to be born again. How many of you birthed yourself? I'm always interested to see if a hand will ever go up. (laughs) None of us. What Jesus is saying is that it comes from outside of yourself. For you to be born again means that there is nothing in and of yourself that you can achieve. There's no amount of scripture you can memorize. There's no amount of church attendance that you can, you can impart. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do, but you must be born again. That is the standard. That is the measurement. And Nicodemus said to him, how? How is this? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I believe this is both a legitimate question and a little bit tongue-in-cheek from Nicodemus. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's many individuals that come to this verse of scripture and and want to know, what, what does Jesus mean by being born of water and the spirit? Well, Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 27, I believe, is exactly what Jesus has in mind as he calls Nicodemus. This, now, remember, he's one of the top 70 Religious leaders, he would have been extremely familiar with this passage in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, it says this. It's a messianic prophecy where it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. 
And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. Remember that the, the, the issue is, is not actions. The issue is the heart of man. The mess that we find ourselves in, what we try to address are only the symptoms. The root is the heart. And he says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, if you notice, I will, I will, I will, I will. Again, he's drawing Nicodemus away from himself, and he's drawing Nicodemus to the reality that there is a measurement that he can never obtain to in and of himself. For if he would, he would have already done that. Remember, he's one of the top 70. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so what we see is the measurement is this reality. If you're taking those, our hearts need radical regeneration. They need radical regeneration. You need a new heart. What is the... The, 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 the answer to the mess that we live in, it is those who have hearts of stone placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receiving a heart of flesh. That is the measurement. That is the standard that we must be born again. And twice, Nicodemus asked, how? How, how is this to transpire? How is this going to happen? Well, thirdly, we see in this passage of Scripture, we see the method. So we've seen the mess, and we've seen the measurement, and now we will see the method. In other words, Jesus will answer Nicodemus' questions of how. How can an individual be born again? And in verses 14 through 15, Jesus answers that question. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first started reading Scripture, when I first became a follower of Jesus Christ, those two verses used to bother me. Now, why in the world... Why in the world would Jesus equate the answer of being born again to this Old Testament event where a serpent, a bronze serpent, was fashioned and created and placed on a pole? Because in my mind, the devil is always associated with the serpent. And the serpent is always associated with the devil. So what in the world is Jesus pointing back to this serpent and this event in the Old Testament 
to get us to understand what it is that, G- that God is trying to point to in relation to being born again. And if you're familiar with that event that transpired, you know that the Israelites, having crossed through the Red Sea on dry land, having seen miracle after miracle as God brought the plagues on the Egyptians, delivered them out from bondage, Just three days' journey in, they come to this uh, pool of water, and they're thirsty, and they start to drink, and it's bitter water, and so they take a tree, and they place it by God's command into the water, and it turns the water sweet. They've seen God do all these things, but they start grumbling. They start grumbling to God, and they start, did you bring us out into the wilderness for us just to die? They had cucumbers and onions back there. They were ready to go back and be enslaved for some cucumbers and some onions. I laugh at that. But yet, what are the cucumbers and the onions in our lives? That we willingly go back into various bondages of sin when God has done miracle after miracle after miracle in our lives. And so God says, okay, y'all are tripping. That's my, that's my version. Y'all are tripping, so you don't appreciate what it is that I have done? Fiery serpents. And these snakes are going around, and they are biting God's people, and, and they are dying. And so Moses comes as an intercessor, and Moses comes before God and says, please, Please show your grace and your mercy upon these, these, these people. Please relent and, and take these snakes away from us. And God says to Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to fashion a serpent to look like what it is that is biting you in bronze. And you're going to put it on a pole and you're going to lift it up. And what we, what we see in Numbers 21, 8 through 9, what we, what we see is, is this. God's word says, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bidden when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Make this serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and if anybody looks to the serpent, they will live. In other words, the venom that is coursing through their veins that, that will kill them will be removed from them, and they will live. You see, when we talk about the method, and Jesus points to the reality of this event that, take pl- that took place, we see this, that The only way we can be born again is by that being accomplished by the perfect penal substitution. That's the the only way. There has to be a substitute. There is a punishment, but there has to be something substituted in the place of those that are being punished to take that punishment. And what Jesus is saying is the reason why God had them fashion that bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole because that was the thing that was killing them. And Jesus said, so too it would be like the Son of Man. 
Because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The venom that is destroying each and every individual is the venom of sin. We have all been bit by the serpent Satan. And we are all dying because of that. But yet God made a way. And Jesus was lifted up and became sin on your behalf and on my behalf. And just as the Israelites in the wilderness, when they got bit, if they would go and in faith look at the bronze serpent, they would be healed. They would be cured. So too, when we go to the foot of the cross of Calvary and in faith, we look upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who became sin on our behalf. That venom that is destroying us, that heart that is causing so much pain and despair and brokenness when we look upon Jesus in faith who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf he removes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh and that venom that had been coursing through our veins is removed and we have everlasting life now that's the context of John 3.16 that's the context of the verse that so many individuals know but have yet to come out from underneath the bondage of sin with venom coursing through their veins to look in faith upon the one who willingly died on the cross for them. So the first, fourth thing that I want to point out to you is the motive. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus why would he willingly allow himself to be lifted up on that cross? And in verses 16 through 17, we see the motive. For God so loved the world. What world? The world that we read about back in verses 24 and 25. The, the world of men that Jesus would not entrust himself as an earthly king to because he knew the venom that was in their hearts. But yet he still, while we were yet sinners, went to the cross and died for us. For God so loved the world, the broken, fallen, rebellious world. God so loved us in the depths of our depravity that it says he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did he do it? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. In all of your brokenness, in all of your sin, and all of your depravity. It's not like Jesus didn't know how depraved we were. He would not entrust himself to man because he didn't need anybody to explain to him who fallen man was. And yet he still hung on the cross for you and for me and for every rebel and sinner that has ever walked the face of this earth so that Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ev uh, eternal life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is his motive. His motive is love to restore and to redeem. 
He knows the pain and the suffering of the venom of sin coursing through our veins. And he willingly allowed himself to be pierced to and hung on a cross to pay for your sin and my sin if you will but come and look in faith at him. Now, the Israelites that had been bitten by those physical snakes... Their mama couldn't go look at the bronze serpent for them. Their daddy couldn't go look at the bronze serpent for them. Their grandparents couldn't go look at the bronze serpent for them. They couldn't just mentally ascend to the fact that there is a bronze serpent. And if somebody would go look at that bronze serpent, that they would be healed. They had to go. They had to go in awe of their brokenness maybe crawling on their hands and their feet to that specific location to look at that specific serpent made of bronze upon that pole that was lifted up and they had to themselves look in faith upon that which God had lifted up for them to be saved. Listen to me. Your mama can't look to Jesus for you. Your daddy can't look to Jesus for you. Your spouse can't look to Jesus for you. Your grandparents can't look to Jesus for you. You can't just amendingly ascend to this knowledge that there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross. You can't just have a mental ascension to that. You, in faith, in all of your brokenness, in all of your despair, by the crawling on your hands and your knees, if you have to, come to the point where you look upon Jesus on the cross in faith for you to be born again and healed. That's the method. That is the method laid out for us in Scripture. The motive was God's love. In fact, everything that we read is grounded in God's lavish love. It is a lavish love that John 3.16 is grounded in. It is a lavish love that the cross of Calvary is grounded in. It is a lavish love. That speaks of Ephesians 1 and 2 of who we are in Christ Jesus. It is a lavish love. Lastly, we see in verses 18 through 21, we see the message. We see the message that we have been given as those who have looked in faith upon Jesus. This is the ultimate reality that many individuals avoid and false religions try to cloak. The reality is this world is in a mess and the measurement is not your own self-righteous works, but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is that you would be born again and the method was the Son of God dying for your sins on that cross and he did it with the motive of love and here is the message. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you notice that? There is such a lie the enemy has perpetrated within this world. There is such a lie that says the jury's still out. When your time ends here on this earth, we'll we'll, we'll see. 
you'll go into the courtroom and, and you'll be able to plead your case and you'll be able to stand before God and, and, and tell him, yeah, there's some bad things in my life, but I also did these good things. I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, but that's not the measurement, is it? That's not the measurement. The measurement is that you have to be born again. Well, like Nicodemus, how? How does that happen? You have to look upon Jesus in faith. For he took your place on the cross. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Romans 8.1 tells us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's not that you're not guilty. It's just that you're forgiven. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's the message. Redemption is found exclusively in a single Savior. This is the message that that we ultimately have been entrusted to proclaim to the world. Just as in the days of the Israelites in the wilderness, there weren't multiple ways and multiple things to look at and multiple places to go to to find your healing. It was exclusive in nature. It was singular in nature. And so too it is with redemption of our spiritual condition, of the depravity of our hearts. There is only one person who can perform that heart surgery of removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, and that is Jesus. It's not found in anyone or anything else. It's not found in you. It's not found in these false gods. It's not found in a status to be achieved in this world. It is not found in a political affinity. It is not found in an amount of money. It is not found in a spouse. It is not found in children. It is only found in Jesus. That's the message that the world hates so much. And he is exclusively inclusive. Meaning, he's exclusive in the sense that there is only one door that you can walk through. There are not many paths up the side of the same mountain that leads to the same God. There is only one path, but it is inclusive in that all those who by faith walk that path, they will be saved. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Least his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, how do we get moved from the darkness to the light? Only by faith in Jesus. There is no other path. There is no other Savior. There is no other way. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That is the ultimate reality of the world that we live in. It is a broken mess because of the rebellious hearts of man. And there is a standard that God says only these 
that meat can enter into my kingdom. And so, therefore, you have to be born again. You have to be given a new heart. And the only way you can receive a new heart is to look upon Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in faith and acknowledgement that he is the son of God and he paid for your sins on that cross. But to know that an overflow of that action comes from a heart of unfailing love, that he loves That's the message that he's entrusted into each and every one of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There are people all around us that are dying with the venom of sin coursing through their veins. And yet there is one and only one way they can be healed. That is the message that has been imparted to you and to me. Are we going to be found faithful to go to those who are dying, thinking that the solution to their pain and suffering is some form of morality or something that the world has to offer when in the truth is they need a new heart and there is only one who can give that to them. Think about the joy of an individual in the wilderness that looked upon that bronze serpent in faith and upon near death they were saved going back into their neighbor's tents, into their family member's tents, into their friends' tents and proclaiming that God has made a way. You no longer have to suffer with this sickness. You no longer have to suffer with this disease. You no longer have to suffer with this pain. God has provided a way, the joy of bringing individuals to that spot that they once stood at and looked at the bronze serpent and found their healing, the joy to see their friends and their family members and their neighbors look and find the same healing. And for us who have looked upon Jesus and have found freedom for who the Son sets free is free indeed, have found our identity in Christ as Ephesians 1 and 2 proclaim to us what for us to go to our neighbors and to our friends and our family members and to say that God has made a way that I who once had sin coursing through my veins dying the death of all rebels because of a depraved heart. There is one who has replaced my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh. He calls me his own. He has redeemed me and reconciled me. He has made me a new creation. He has given me an eternal promise. And if you will come and if you will look in the same faith, he will do the same thing for you. That is the message that we proclaim. That is the message that has been entrusted to us. Have you looked upon Jesus in faith? Have you found the healing for the venom of sin coursing through your veins? If you haven't in this moment right now, 
I want to invite you to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You, in faith, look upon Christ and find redemption, find salvation, find the eternal promises that are yes and amen.